All right, we are back. And I sort of hate to talk about this octuplet story, but I think it just cries out for some discussion. At least a bit more than we gave it last week. Apparently Nadia Suleiman's doctor is coming under scrutiny for his implantation of eight fetuses into her uterus. They're asking whether the doctor does not have an ethical obligation to ask some pointed questions about her mental status and her financial circumstances. She uh, got somewhat less than a ringing endorsement from her own mother, who said, Nadia's not evil, but she is obsessed with children. Of course, what strikes me is people who are defending this decision. Apparently, Brian Reed said in WashingtonPost.com, Well, does, does this really make her crazy? Granted, most of us wouldn't want 14 kids, but it's, it's not my job or yours to decide on an acceptable number for some other person. Like all of us, Suleiman should be free to make her own reproductive decisions. Well, to that we say, sure, un- unless, you know, the public has to pay for all those decisions. What do you think the annual diaper bill for octuplets is going to come to? Apparently even the LA Times kind of thought this was okay. They said, well, sure, she has many sleepless nights and long, difficult days ahead of her, but she can also look forward to a house full of playing, laughter, learning, and in a month or so, eight first smiles. It's a sad truth about our society that we're far quicker to find fault with someone's eccentric lifestyle choice than to think that perhaps it will turn out to be simply extraordinary. Nadia Suleiman's mother said, well, you know, she wanted to have children since she was a teenager, but luckily she couldn't. Of course, the weird sidelight of this story is apparently a friend who helps care for Nadia Suleiman's autistic son said that, uh, well, when she asked her how she could afford this, she said, well, she got paid for it. And one does has, have to wonder, because uh, reportedly, even b- before the 33-year-old single, unemployed mother gave birth to octuplets, she'd been caring for her six other children with the help of $490 a month in food stamps, plus Social Security disability payments for three of the youngsters. And estimates are that since in California, a low-income family can receive Social Security payments of up to $793 a month for each disabled child, three children would amount to $2,379. We should remind the listeners that all eight of these children were premature, since the average cost for a premature baby's hospital stay in California is $164,000. Eight times that works out to more than $1.3 million. And according to estimates by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, for a single mother, the cost of raising 14 children through age 17 ranges from $1.3 million to $2.7 million. Of course, treatment for in vitro fertilization is not cheap. The patient herself estimated that all of her treatments cost $100,000. And, uh, you know, we, we hate to go tabloid on you with a story like this, but uh, this does raise quite a few questions that need to get looked at. And speaking of tabloid-type stories, we have to follow up on what Dr. Dean said last week about a washed-up actress going on to Oprah and causing harm to America's medical community that can last for years. Well, we thought we'd take a look at that a little bit further. It turns out the washed-up actress is Suzanne Somers, and apparently the former Threes Company star, who's now 62, did reveal on the Oprah Winfrey show that she begins her day with a breakfast of 40 pills. 15 of which are ground up into a thick shake. And she then applies syringes of various hormones to her arms and vagina. 
and at bedtime enjoys a light snack of 20 more pills. Summers conceded on the program that the routine may make her seem, quote, like some kind of fanatic, unquote, but she said she wants to be alive and alert at 110 and will do what I have to do to get there. We really have to agree with Dr. Dean. Apparently, Suzanne Summers was diagnosed, I believe, with breast cancer a couple of years back and decided not to seek traditional medical treatment for it and urged a lot of other women to follow in her wake. Now, that is her decision, but, uh, boy, you have to question uh, whether the women of America should be following, uh, following the lead of Suzanne Summers. I'll tell you one thing. I wouldn't make any book on her being alive and alert at age 110. And I wasn't quite won over also by the article in the Sacramento V, February 15th, repeated from the Chicago Tribune by Julie Deerdorf about how alternative medicine is going mainstream as doctors add it in. While I'd agree that it is important to look at the patient as a whole when you treat them, you don't necessarily have to involve a lot of other alternative therapies to do so. Case in point, uh, the photograph accompanying the article showed, showed a doctor Dr. Charles Dermott, who was treating a patient with eczema by applying acupuncture pellets to her hands and arms. I don't know, I don't want to revisit this in great length today, but refer you back to our interview with Simon Singh, author of Trick or Treatment, which is available on our website, radioparallax.com. But I think you, you should really have some doubts when you read the following. Laura Rusteno of Wheaton, Illinois, tried an integrative physician, that's the Charles Dumont of Loyola University. He's a pediatric gastroenterologist. He's a pediatric gastroenterologist treating the patient's eczema. And after prescribing drugs, creams, steroids, and lotions, which failed to treat her daughter Alexa's, Alex's severe eczema, well, they tried hand acupuncture, which uses pellets in place of needles, and the condition cleared up almost instantly. I sp- suspected a a significant subplot to conventional medicine accepting some of these treatments is that they're dirt cheap. Should we all be using things like meditation, yoga, biofeedback? Well, yeah, maybe. Those are the sorts of things it's really hard to go wrong with. But uh, acupuncture pellets? Got my doubts. There's a fascinating article we promised we'd get to uh, some weeks back, and I guess today's the day. Uh, Dr. Dean makes, made some passing reference uh, to this uh, at his talk two weeks ago as part of the California Lecture Series. But um, curiously, uh, this research suggests that you're not only beholden to the, moves of, the moods of your friends and your friends' friends, but it may extend out to three degrees of separation. Your friends, friends, friends. Noted the article by Michael Bond in, uh, in New Scientist that it's becoming clear that a whole range of phenomena are transmitted through networks of friends in ways that are not entirely understood. Happiness and depression, obesity, drinking and smoking habits, ill health, and an inclination to turn out and vote in elections, along with a taste for certain types of music or food, a preference for online privacy, and even the tendency to attempt or think about suicide. Apparently, uh, researcher Nicholas Christakis, who was described as a medical sociologist at Harvard Medical School in Boston, has looked into this. And they did this by taking the famous Framingham Heart Study, which has been a multi-generational epidemiologic survey of heart patients to try and track risk factors. This uh, study commenced in 1948 and is still going on. 
And the research indicates that happy people tend to be clustered together, not because they naturally orient, orient toward each other, but because of the way happiness spreads through social contact over time, regardless of people's conscious choice of friends. They believe the effect is not the same with everyone you know. How susceptible you are to someone else's happiness depends on the nature of your relationship with them. Noted, for example, that if a good friend who lives within a couple of kilometers of you suddenly becomes happy, that increases your chance of becoming happy by more than 60%. They compared that to a next-door neighbor and found the figure drops to about half of that. So, how can this be? Well, they're, they're trying to figure out. They're trying to figure it out. They think this may have something to do with what's called empathetic mimicry. Psychologists have shown that people unconsciously copy the facial expressions, manner of speech, posture, body language, and other behaviors of those around them, often with remarkable speed and accuracy. This then causes them, through kind of neural feedback, to actually experience the emotions associated with the particular behavior they're mimicking. There's, uh, there's surely something to this. A lot of people have noted that in, in comedy, K-words are often employed. And certain sounds are used in various comedy bits because they sort of force your mouth into a smile. In fact, if you look in the mirror while saying k, you'll notice that the edges of your lips turn upwards. Does this in turn feedback on your mood? Well, a lot of people think so. A lot of the recent uh, research going on into mirror neurons, the type of brain cells that, uh, that fire when you perform an action imitating what someone else is doing, well... They have found that people feel a reflection of uh, the person they're imitating's emotions when they imitate them. These researchers have further, further noted that, uh, you know, seeding a localized social group with certain ideas or behaviors can lead to the ideas cascading across entire global networks. I think this is going to come as no surprise to those people involved in merchandising. Of course, where this topic gets really curious is, what if you've got some friends in your social network that are real downers? Noted the article, actually cutting ties with old friends might be a bit drastic, though perhaps spending less time with those whose traits we do not wish to share would be a good idea. Lazy people, perhaps, or those inclined to negative thinking. And beware those who hang out with such people, even if they do not display their views or behaviors. Remember the three degrees of contagion rule. Final bit of advice, if you really cannot avoid spending time with certain people whose behaviors or emotional state you would rather not take on board, certain relatives at family gatherings perhaps, you could always try repressing your natural inclination to mimic their body language and facial expressions and so limit the contagion effect. Although you need to be prepared for them to be instinctively cool toward you as a result. It's, it's interesting preliminary research, and of course it would give us the, the, new, uh, the new adage, we are who we hang out with. All right, in other medical news, it appears that abstinence-only education may have come to an end in the United States, and may it rest in peace. This, of course, was the brainchild of the George Bush Jr. administration. After spending about $175 million a year on it, discovered, ooh, it doesn't work. But it appears that Barack Obama is going to let that one die a well-deserved death. And speaking of uh, changes in the medical world under Obama, there may be some hints of a change to come on the question of medicinal pot laws. Article in the Sacramento Bee by Devin Bartlett noted that the White House won't say it explicitly, 
and neither will the Drug Enforcement Administration, but there's a whiff in the air that U.S. policy is about to change when it comes to medical marijuana. The quoted UCLA professor Mark Kleinman, a former Justice Department official and expert on crime and drug policy, saying it's no longer federal policy to beat up on hippies. Noted the article's author, we'll tell that to the DEA. In California this past week, in California earlier this month, agents raided four dispensaries in Los Angeles and seized 500 pounds of pot. Said Kleinman, it's a bit surprising because I think current DEA management didn't get the message. There's an article on medical cannabis in the January 3rd New Scientist, like to quote from. In the eyes of international law, there's only one way to deal with cannabis. Ban it. The 186 governments signed up to the 1961 Convention on Drugs are required to do just that. The results are unimpressive. Some 166 million people worldwide use cannabis, many of them in countries with the most punitive anti-cannabis regimes. In fact, there's going to be a proposal advanced at the United Nations next month in March to decriminalize the drug and let governments produce it and sell it. This way, less potent strains would be encouraged and sale to teenagers who are the greatest risk, who are at the greatest risk, would be banned. Noted the magazine, today's illegal suppliers would be marginalized and resources would be freed up to fight more damaging drugs. Of course, I think it's pretty clear that some of the drug warriors out there are not going to go along with this. Now, marijuana has been described as the world's most widely used illicit drug. And this report they're going to talk about uh, at this UN meeting did note that um, marijuana is far less harmful to users in society than other illicit drugs like heroin and cocaine. And for that matter, far less damaging than legal drugs, tobacco, and alcohol. According to the report, there have been two documented cases of deaths from marijuana overdose. Medically, I'm not sure that's correct. I'm not sure there are any documented cases of deaths from marijuana or hashish overdose. But let's, let's go along with worst case scenario. Let's say there have been two. This compares to an annual uh, death toll around the world of 200,000 deaths from illegal drugs, uh, compared to 2.5 million deaths annually related to alcohol versus smoking, which kills 5 million people a year. In fact, one of the main harmful effects noted um, in the study was the fact that uh, marijuana use can get you arrested. According to criminologist Peter Reuter from the University of Maryland, if you don't think being arrested is harm, you're unpersuadable. In the United States, 750,000 people were arrested in 2006, and I think that's a substantial harm. I don't know. There's a sidebar in this article in New Scientist about how bad is it relating to marijuana use which noted that the most damaging of the possible ill effects of cannabis apparently is psychosis. And quoted Dave Murray, head of research at the U.S. Office of National Drug Control Policy, who said that in the U.S. the strength and market dominance of potent marijuana strains has paralleled a rise in emergency hospital admissions of people suffering psychoses after cannabis use. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on this, and I don't claim to have read everything there is in the medical literature on this topic, but... I do have to say that in 25 years of medicine, I have never seen or even heard of a case of marijuana-induced psychosis. And uh, David Murray couldn't resist also noting that another worry with cannabis is that it's a gateway drug, encouraging use of more damaging substances. Uh, no, Mr. Murray, the gateway drugs are tobacco and alcohol. Studies have proven 
again and again that these widely available legal substances are almost always the first drugs people are exposed to in their youth. Of course, up in Canada, there's apparently an editorial in the Edmonton Sun about how Canadians need to not drive stoned, which frankly does seem like sensible advice. Although I was curious to note in that uh, article in New Scientist that, um, that cannabis intoxication reportedly right, raises a driver's risk of crashing by 1.3 to 3 times. By contrast, alcohol intoxication raises your accident risk by 15x. But anyway, up in Canada, they're apparently very indignant about the fact that uh, if you fully test drivers who are arrested for being under the influence, that fully 10% of them tested had drugs in their system compared with 8% for alcohol. Of course, they don't tell you what those drugs were. I presume that means any other drug among them marijuana. I don't know. That's enough of that. Well, maybe no, not quite. Here's an article I can't resist. Suffolk County, New York police said Marvin Rice Jr. lost control of his rental car and hit a utility pole Sunday morning. Mr. Rice was a convicted drunken driver whose car was equipped with an anti-drunken driving technology. He crashed in a rented vehicle. Police said the 27-year-old had agreed after a previous DWI conviction to have his car equipped with a device that tests for alcohol in a driver's breath before it will start. Note of the article, it was unclear if he rented another car because it had no such device. Well, unclear to them, maybe. Now, speaking of damaging our youth, how about this item? Watching a lot of TV during adolescence, an alarming new study has found, can change a normal brain into a depressive one. Dr. Brian Primack did a study and informed the Los Angeles Times that after tracking more than 4,000 adolescents as they grew up, he found that for every extra hour a teen spends watching TV or playing video games, he or she is 8% more likely to develop depression as an adult. Doctor speculates that uh, being parked in front of a screen often replaces positive social, academic, and athletic activities that give kids a sense of mastery and self-respect and instead teaches them to be passive and to judge themselves against fictional characters whose looks and accomplishments seem out of reach. And speaking of TV, I think we'll close with this item. You may have noticed uh, on primetime they're now advertising hard liquor. Apparently, as the Bush recession is taking its toll on firms that rely on advertising, uh, TV stations are running ads once considered inappropriate, and they're not alone. In recent months, the NBA rescinded a ban on courtside advertising by liquor companies. Google and Facebook did the same for ads on their websites. And billboard operators have allowed more strip clubs to hawk their establishments on roadside signs. So I guess if Michael Phelps had been uh, photographed with a stripper on one arm and a bottle of uh, Captain Morgan spiced rum on the other, he wouldn't have gotten a three-month ban from competitive swimming. He'd still be moving Kellogg's cornflakes. Well, apparently as the bottoms dropped out of the advertising market, they're looking for newer sources of revenue, and uh, publishers and TV stations acknowledge that the economy has forced changes in the type of ads they're willing to accept. This is not a trend we applaud. Uh, and, I, and actually, new things were going south when I, sh I saw the ShamWow being advertised in Spanish. You know, Vince talking about the ShamWow. Look how it absorbs. Look. 
Anyway, we need a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned. <laughs>